Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and today my guest is Sir Stephen Wall, author of Reluctant European, Britain and the European Union from 1945 to Brexit. This was published in September by Oxford University Press. Stephen is no ordinary biographer of Britain's 47-year membership of the EU, which ended in January this year. First, he is the official historian of this relationship, as designated by the Cabinet Office, and has so far published three volumes reaching up to 1985. Second, he actually lived much of this political history from the inside. Starting in the diplomatic service in 1968, he joined the press team in Downing Street in 1974, assisted two foreign secretaries in the Callaghan and Thatcher governments, and headed the European Community Department in the Foreign Office from 1983 to 88. And that's just the appetizer, because from 88 to 91, he was private secretary to three foreign secretaries, then did the same job for John Major when he was prime minister in 91 to 93. Then for five years, from 95 to 2000, he was Britain's permanent representative to the European Union in Brussels, before returning to London to serve as head of the Cabinet Office European Secretariat under Tony Blair until 2004. He's done plenty since then, uh, but we can return to some of that later in the discussion. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, as I said, you have written three volumes of the official history, and you still have 35 years to cover. Um, I think I can guess, but what made you decide to jump to the end and publish Reluctant European this year? Well, two things, really. First of all, it's not clear that the official history series in a recognisable form anyway, is going to continue. Um, I mean, I was at the tail end because uh, when the cuts came in uh, in 2010, the then Cabinet Secretary decided to axe the programme as was. So they honoured existing contracts. Uh, And what will happen for the future isn't clear. And anyway, as you say, that was, I was, in writing those volumes, I was working for the government and I was, telling the story based on the archives. And basically, I wanted to tell the story as I saw it. Um, I mean, hopefully, in a way that um, is objective, but I did want to begin and end the book uh, with my own personal views, which, of course, I couldn't do if it was still an official work. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, I mean, what struck me, um, I mean, I I, I mentioned it was a 47-year membership, but what really struck me reading it, particularly in the first a uh, few chapters was um, how compressed the timeline feels, the sheer speed of events. Uh, I mean, for example, from getting the go-ahead to join the EEC to joining in 73 to arguing about the budget to Thatcher, uh, which I didn't know, by the way, um, it, considering leaving in 1980 over the budget, and we'd only been in for seven years. It, did it feel that way to you at the time, and did it feel that way to you when, when, when you were writing it? Well, I suppose I'd, I mean I'd, I'd I'd lived I'd lived all of I'd lived all of that, and I and I think 
after the, I mean, the, as you as you rightly as you rightly say, we joined uh, in 1973. Um, we would, of course, have joined ten years earlier had it not been for the two vetoes exercised by President de Gaulle of France. And I think that ten years of being kept out. Uh, already kind of created a, a, a kind of sense of tension between Britain and our future uh, partners. And then because we joined late, we had to join on rather unsatisfactory terms. The Labour government that uh, came into power uh, in 74 renegotiated those terms and held a referendum where 66% of the electorate voted to remain. And I had thought, as I think most people did, that that would be the end of it. That we might grumble, but basically we were in it for the long for the long haul. But the the budgetary issue, the question of Britain basically paying more into the common budget than she should have done in terms of our relative prosperity, that had not really been resolved by the Labour renegotiation. And Margaret Thatcher took up the cudgels. I mean, had Jim Callaghan won the election in seventy nine, he would have done the same, albeit not quite with uh, such ferocity uh, as uh, as her. And although I don't think she uh, was ser- ever, th- ever thought seriously then about leaving the European community, she certainly did think about withholding Britain's budget contribution, which in a, in a sort of precursor a bit of some of the argument we've been hearing here in Britain recently would have been an illegal act. Um, I mean, the government would have had to legislate to make it legitimate to withhold the budget contribution, uh, and it would still have been illegal in European community law. And the then Attorney General, Michael Havers, father of the actor Nigel Havers, did say that the government had to ask itself the question whether to do that would, was, would have either credibility or respectability. And she backed off. Yeah, it's it's uh, early in the book. You you identify some of the sort of original sins that that eventually led to Brexit, going right back to the referendum and the civil war and the, the development of a a worldview that you um, that you call English virtues against corrupt continental and alien popery. Um, in his review of the book, Andrew Rawnsley said. Quote, Stephen Wall is not an in- inevitableist, but his account will give a lot of ammunition to those who are. Um, do, do you agree with him? Uh, yes, to the extent that, I mean, I, I think this is this is always a problem, isn't it? Because whatever happens or has happened, we always always look at the, at the things that made it uh, possible to happen or even likely to happen. I mean, we, we look at what happened after the First World War and we attribute the seeds of the Second World War to the Treaty of Versailles, rightly. But I mean, the fact is, you know, without the monstrous genius of Hitler, would World War Two have have uh, have happened? I mean, I think the basic thing that I think the book shows is that there was never really a period of our membership where we, as a country, were at ease with it. We didn't really like the whole uh, concept that we were we had to accept as the terms of membership that this was a project whose members were committed. Britain Britain was formally committed to political union and economic and monetary union. And we always kind of disliked that in a way that uh, our partners didn't. And some of the time we pretended to ourselves that it wasn't, uh, that it wasn't going to happen. And at other times we, uh, we fought against it. So with relatively rare exceptions, there wasn't a time when popular support for the project 
went very much above 50%. It hovered around the 50% mark most of the time. An exception to that was obviously the 75 referendum. And another exception was when Margaret Thatcher, basically, it was her initiative, uh, the single market, the single European Act brought in the single market in goods and services inside what was then the European community. And Lord Young, David Young, who was then the Secretary of State for Trade, had a uh, a television, an advertising campaign to bring to the attention of British business this new single market. And public awareness over the three-month period of this TV campaign went up from 3% to over 90%. And the popularity of the European community went up as well to around 65%. And I think that's about the, the highest it, it, it had been. It certainly never, I think, got to those, those heights uh, ever again. I, I remember those well. Um it's funny because what you say there, and it's certainly the theme of the book, this sort of tragedy of misunderstandings and, and, and political mistakes and, and that that half-hearted feeling towards the European Union. I'm, I'm not sure we're unique in that. I mean, if you look at the, you look at how the French voted in the first round of the 2017 presidential election, you're looking at 40 to 45% of uh, people voting for uh, candidates who either wanted to leave the EU or leave the euro area. Uh, you look at the way Italians voted in 2018. It, it's I've I was being struck that there's actually very few um, countries that have a sort of. It, it, it's rather in their DNA. The Germans being one, the, maybe the Spanish, obviously the Belgians, but not many more really have it deeply embedded in them. This this sort of mission towards European Union? Well, I think I think public opinion uh, in the rest of the uh, EU uh, did change over time. I think that if you, I mean, if you look at the history, you have the original Treaty of Rome, the founding treaty in 1957. And then apart from treaties of accession, i.e. the treaties which individual countries like us signed in order to, to join, there's no significant further treaty change until 1985 when you get the single European Act setting up the single uh, the single market. Thereafter, there are quite a lot of, of, mm. of different uh, different treaties. Um, obviously, the Maastricht Treaty, which introduced the single currency, and then the Amsterdam Treaty and the Nice Treaty and the, and the Lisbon Treaty. And I think that um, those, those treaties were designed by politicians and, and, and bureaucrats, and, and ordinary voters couldn't quite see what's the relevance to us. You know, the exception to that is, of course, the Maastricht Treaty introducing uh, the single currency. And that was, in a sense, rather half-hearted. I mean, they willed the ends in terms of economic and monetary union, but those who signed up to that treaty didn't really will the means. In particular, they turned their face against fiscal transfers. In other words, against transfers of money from the rich countries to the poor countries. And Margaret Thatcher uh, said at the time, you know, if this, is, if this is going to work, it's got to be like a nation state in which the wealthier regions provide support for the poorer regions. But that can only happen uh, in a true political union. And for her, that political union was a, was a step too was a step too far. And in a sense, the eurozone has been kind of wrestling with that dilemma uh, ever since. I mean, I think now. Uh, um, the latest um, measures that they that they took just a few weeks ago, they are moving closer towards uh, a fiscal union, and I think that's you know, that that is obviously one of the issues that was at stake when David Cameron uh, decided to call a referendum 
and and I, and I think that looking back, the Maastricht Treaty was a very significant parting of the ways when we opted out from the single currency. I didn't see it at the time. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was obviously significant, um, but I didn't realize how significant in that it would set most of the rest of the EU on a path which politically and economically was very divergent from the one we stayed on. It, it didn't have to be though, did it? I mean, if you look at, oh, they weren't in at the time, but uh, the, uh, well, the Danes were, but the, the Swedes weren't. So there are a number of established um, rich democracies that have given no indication of joining the euro uh, in in the in the near future, but are qu- quite bound in with other common policies and that don't have this sort of semi-detached uh, position. It it wasn't inevitable that we ended up where we did, don't you think? No, 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 absolutely not. Um, uh, but I think that you know there was always that there was an additional tension, if you like, uh, between us and the other two of the lo- largest member states, France and France and Germany, um, and. There too, we 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 paid a price for joining late. I mean, the rules of the club were obviously established pr- primarily in the interests of France and Germany. Uh, part of the whole purpose of the coal and steel community and then the European community was reconciliation between France and Germany. France had, after all, been overrun by Germany three times in less than uh, in less than a century, and there was a uh, therefore in the way the in the economic way. The project was constructed. There was a benefit for Germany, which would she she would have uh, access to a single market over time for her burgeoning industry. France would get massive support for her uh, agriculture, which remained uh, in the fifties and through the sixties an important part of the economy, and in particular important uh, politically. I mean, President Pompidou, when he negotiated with Heath to let uh, Britain into the European Community following the death of de Gaulle, uh, Pompidou said, you know, I don't, I don't want uh, all these conservative uh, peasants who vote for me uh, to turn into urban industrial car workers voting for the socialists or the communists. And we were not part, we were not part of that. And we, we, we wanted to be part of a sort of troika, if you like, uh, running the show. But one of the things about the relationship with, between France and Germany is they did make real sacrifices to each other in terms of their, their national interests. We found always found that very, very uh, difficult. We're not, we weren't good at the, at the kind of rhetoric. Um, the French were very good at the rhetoric of European Union, even if they occasionally had their fingers crossed behind their backs. The Germans genuinely believed in that rhetoric, because although very few of us saw it coming, um, for them, German reunification was always a realistic, uh, real am- ambition. And Helmut Kohl, when he was German Chancellor in particular, Kohl's view was you know, Germany could easily drift into a kind of dangerous uh, neutrality. And therefore, German reunification can only happen safely if Germany is bound in to Western uh, political structures, and, the, and that structure is for him was for him a political union, so for him that was a very a very real thing. Whereas for us, um, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was the supreme exemplar uh, of it. For her, the answer was you you know you have tough nation states and you stand up to Germany. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting uh, point in the book uh, you made about coal. Um, and a speech he made in 1984 where he talked about the United States of Europe. And Jeffrey Howe at the time tried 
to harness him into a, a broader relationship that included the United States and so on, and Thatcher was antagonistic. But it, it made more sense to me because my memory of it at the time was that Cole was afraid of German power, and that always struck me as rather um, anachronistic. But fear of becoming a, an enormous Switzerland, that seems... That that seems a much more realistic uh, uh, fear, and that uh, yes, and the you know, fr- Germany I mean, has come close to it a few times. And and I mean the, the the French sort of veered between the two. I mean they they were worried uh, either that Germany would drift into neutrality or that it would be the dominant power again in in Europe with all you know the fears that that uh, uh, that that provoked. And Mitterrand, Mitterrand, President Mitterrand's reaction to that was the answer is to clasp Germany tightly to your, your bosom, as it were. And he, he did a deal with Kohl, whereby Kohl accepted the notion of a single currency, giving up the Deutschmark. Um, and that on that basis, Mitterrand was, was prepared to, to uh, accept reunification. I mean, his instinctive personal reaction to German reunification was as as hostile as, as as Margaret Thatcher's. But unlike her, he didn't translate it into overt hostility. Yeah, I mean, in your experience working for various foreign secretaries and prime ministers, did you? And you mentioned that that Blair attempted this uh, idea of trying to prize apart Schroeder and, and Chirac. Did you ever have an experience with any of them where you felt they were making a, a really sustained diplomatic effort to 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 crack in there, rather than it just being on a whim and then they're giving up? Well, I think. If you if you take the Thatcher uh, period, there's, there's there's no doubt in my mind that Geoffrey Howe was de- was determined to make that effort, tried to make that uh, effort, but um, you know the relationship between I mean they were they were chalk and cheese as as personalities. I mean Geoffrey Howe, uh, who was a lovely a lovely man, I really enjoyed working for him. You know, he, he but he essentially believed in the power of reasoned argument. And that wasn't her way. I mean, she, you know, she, I mean, not that she was uh, not capable of reasoned argument, she was, but I mean, she had very, very firm views and those views prevailed. And so the distance between them widened to the point where eventually, as you know, she, she sacked him. I mean, John Major, uh, I think John Major is, is probably uh, uh, epitomizes in, in, in a way um, a certain kind of pro European view uh, in Britain, which was not uh, wanting political or monetary uh, union, but wanting to make a success of our membership. We, you know, we were one of the bigger, bigger countries. We needed to get on with France and Germany. Um, and his first speech as prime minister in Germany talked about putting Britain at the heart of Europe, but it was already immensely controversial within the Conservative Party. Part of that was because uh, once he had signed up to the Maastricht Treaty and Margaret Thatcher was then sitting on the back benches in the House of Lords, she set herself up pretty disgracefully, I think, uh, in, in very open opposition to what he was doing. And a lot of people, young, younger members of the Conservative Party, kind of gathered at her feet and loyalty to the former leader and opposition to Europe became synonymous. So... Mm. Uh, I mean, when John Major, rather to everybody's surprise, won the general election in 1992, and I was working for him, I could remember saying, well, you know, this is great, you know, you've got your own mandate. And he said, you know, you wait, this is where my troubles begin. I'm I'm standing astride a crack in the Conservative Party that's getting wider by by the minute. And of course, it did get get wider and wider. And her her repositioning 
I always did find a little strange. And there's this nice little anecdote you you mention in the book where you you printed off the Bruce speech for for Tony Blair, and he read it and came back to you, and he said that you know that seems entirely reasonable and not extreme. And, and yet she's been well, she's been reinvented and reinvented herself as a Eurosceptic, even though she is the person who brought us the Single European Act, which you could argue is the basis of today's um, European economic area. She wouldn't have liked the moves towards uh, greater forms of federalism, but actually to leave the uh, to leave the single market, if she were being consistent, I don't think she would uh, advocate that. No, I think. I mean, I think. I think she was getting more sceptical as time went on. Although even after she stopped being prime minister, she didn't. She never kind of denounced uh, the treaty that had given rise to, mm. uh, to, the, to the single European Act. I mean, she was very much opposed to the single uh, currency. Um, but uh, and it's, you know, this is impossible to know. But I think it's quite likely that had she remained prime minister, she would have been persuaded by the same argument that John Major was persuaded by, which was that if if we didn't allow our partners to go ahead, those who wanted to with a single currency, they would have made a separate treaty outside the European community, mm. European Union. And we would then have been completely uh, uh, excluded from any influence over it, let alone the possibility of joining it. And one of the things, I mean, we now all think about the opt-out as being because we didn't want to take part. At the time, haunted a bit by what had happened uh, with the Treaty of Rome. In other words, we paid a price for joining late. As big a concern as staying out was to ensure that if there came a time when, for economic reasons, we wanted to join, we wouldn't pay a price uh, for doing so. Um, so I think it's quite likely that she, as if she'd stayed prime minister, would have come to that same conclusion. But she wasn't prime minister, and so of course she was free to say, you know, over my dead body, I would never, have, I would never have allowed this. Well, and it's what happened to Cameron in 2011 with the fiscal exactly. compact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the you 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 differentiate um, each time you go through a prime minister, each chapter where you discuss a prime minister, you break them down between instinctive Europeans and sort of um, transactional Europeans. And from memory, I think you were you was basically saying the only instinctive ones were were, were Heath and Blair, and the others were were transactional. Um, do you feel that was that was there a missed opportunity? Was there a missed prime minister who 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 could have uh, avoided the situation we've been in now? Do you think? Well, Heath is. I mean, Heath is. Heath actually is quite an interesting example because I mean he was an instinctive European, partly based on his wartime uh, uh, experience. Although, as as prime minister. Uh, when there was an, an opportunity, and he al- almost seized it uh, to make a partnership with with Germany, uh, what was later to become the exchange rate mechanism, uh, and the forerunner of the single currency. In the end, he declined to do so. And the documents I was looking at when I was doing the official histories show that he was pretty he was pretty sceptical about the European Commission and about the European uh, and about the European Parliament. Um, I mean, he became much more kind of traditionally European after he'd ceased to be prime minister. So even he was, uh, although he did, he was a genuine believer. Um, 
I mean, the end towards the end of what turned out well, what turned out to be the end of his prime ministership, i.e., the end of 1973, the first year of our membership, on the back of the Yom Kippur War, when the Arab states imposed an oil embargo on much of the European Community, not on France and Britain because of our rather different, our rather different uh, uh, attitude. Um, Heath was then beginning to realise that Britain needed some recompense for these large sums of money it was paying into the budget and was looking for money for the poorer regions. And Heath's last act as Prime Minister was to instruct Alec Douglas Hume, the Foreign Secretary, to go to a meeting in Brussels and say, there's no way we're going to come to the rescue of other member states who are suffering because of this oil embargo unless they're prepared to cough up uh, and give us uh, money so that we're not paying so much into the budget. So, so he was he was already being forced into that transactional mould, basically. Mm-hmm. It, actually, it was funny for me reading that part because that was watching a British government and the Labour government did it afterwards too, behaving like um, like Spanish governments did, uh, you know, like Gonzalez did at the Edinburgh summit, or or, or like the Eastern European uh, governments did, trying to maximise regional transfers. Yeah, absolutely. Not, I mean, not how I not how I tend to think of British government somehow. No, no. And I mean, I think you you, you mentioned you mentioned Tony Blair. I mean, there's no doubt you know that Tony Blair had. I mean, Tony Blair had absolutely no kind of hang-ups about um, uh, about uh, our our membership. I mean, for him, it was just a sort of logical and and necessary and 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 desirable thing. But again, he he partly because he'd never been in government before he became prime minister, but he had no sort of concept really of the power of the European Commission or its role under the treaties, very little regard for the European Parliament, and again really believed that the, the, the show should be run on a kind of intergovernmental basis by France, Germany, uh, and, and the United Kingdom. Hence this attempt that was briefly made uh, after the, the Gulf War. 2003 at Chirac's suggestion. I mean, Chirac was completely open in his view that the European Union, with all these new member states from Central Europe, was going to be ungovernable, and therefore Britain, France, and Germany, you know, had to kind of take charge. Um, but it proved unworkable, partly because the you know, the French and German relationship was too entrenched for us to break into it, and partly because, again, I mean, Blair was weakened by then by uh, by the, fallout from Iraq and wasn't in a position to get British ministers to make the compromises that we would have needed to make. And I think this is a feature of, of our system that, you know, we have a very well-organized uh, system, you know, whereby, you know, a, 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 the whole of Whitehall comes to an agreed view about a particular proposed piece of legislation. And then we tend to, uh, to stick to it. Um, but it also makes us rather inflexible, and we're not very good at making at making at making trade-offs in the way that uh, uh, our partners, certainly the French and Germans, have been good at doing that. Is that the reason? Because I I, I was um, I was struck reading it, uh, and also just from, from the experience of covering the European Union, that um, a succession of British governments failed in a sustained diplomatic effort to build a, a liberal alliance. So, you know, we talked about trying to break into the Franco-German uh, alliance, but but trying to build something wider. And the obvious example to me is, is 2012, when you got the letter from the 12 member states to the European Council president and the creation of the Northern Future Forum. Um, 
it struck me at the time that there was a potential there for a a, a sustainable alliance of like-minded countries with with Britain at the helm, but but Cameron didn't follow it up. It, it, is that something that happened often? That just lack of, I mean, again, you, you talk about it in eighty eight about when when Thatcher agreed to set up the the law committee. She put Robin Lee Pemberton in it assumed the Bundesbank would veto everything and then just forgot about it. it is that a pattern? <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think it is. I mean, when, when, when I was working for Tony Blair, we had a, a sort of informal alliance with, uh, we might call it some Nordic alliance, uh, with the Swedes, the Danes and the, and the Finns, and we used to meet uh, very often. But, you know, they were, they were small, obviously much smaller member states than, than us, there's an extent to which the smaller member states have always been intimidated, really, by uh, the larger member states. And France, I mean, France and France and Germany uh, in tandem um, can be, you know, a, a pretty brutal, a pretty brutal force. Um, and uh, you know, I've, I've watched, I've watched it in in, uh, uh, in operation. And there's, there's, I think, a bit I record in the book where where you know, Thatcher. Uh, when told by the Foreign Office that, uh, and I think during during the negotiations of the Single European Act, she gets a piece of advice that lots of member states support our position, and she said, "How often have I been told that? Only to see that that melt away, leaving us alone to fight the the battles." And I remember, I remember being at a meeting where she, you know, where she we said to her, "You know, don't intervene, Prime Minister. Others have the same view." And she came out and said, "I, I said nothing for ten minutes, and then it was perfectly clear that unless I did speak up, nobody else, nobody else would." I recall a conversation between John, uh, John Major and Cavaco uh, Silva, the Portuguese Prime Minister, um, when Cavaco, I can't remember the issue now, but John Major and Cavaco were absolutely a one. And John Major said, so when we get into the council, you know, I'll speak and will you speak? And Cavaco said, you must be joking. I'm not going to open my mouth on this subject. So. Well, actually, I, in that respect, I do wonder what's going to happen to the EU uh, with issues like, for example, tax harmonisation. Where many people hid behind um, hid behind the UK positions, uh, and with the UK out, they're going to have to out themselves. Yeah, well, I think I mean I think I think this will be this will be this will be uh, uh, interesting to see. I mean, the, the Irish are obviously a very strong uh, case in point because uh, it, obviously it's less less relevant than it was. But the sort of German view: why should we go on paying money for structural fund support for for Ireland when they're undercutting us with with sort of zero tax rates for um, for uh, for uh, for investors? I mean, I think if it's if it's well. I suppose what what has changed is is that there are more individual countries within the European Union who are now basically saying we're not we're just not we're not going to march to the single tune if it doesn't suit us to do so. I mean that has its own dangers clearly for the unity and success of the of the, of the project uh, long term. But I mean you know Poland and Hungary at the moment are kind of extreme examples of. Uh, of, of that, but one wouldn't have. I don't think we would have seen that in past times in the way that we're seeing it now. Yeah, you, you gave the impression um, towards the end of the book. In fact, you 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 put Brown and Cameron together in the same in the same chapter, this post Blair chapter. Um, that Brown, to some extent, um, fed some of the anti-European sentiment that that developed in in, in the final years, particularly with the way he used to. His approach to negotiations used to turn up in Brussels and had to turn everything into a fight. 
do, do you feel that he did contribute to the to the souring of uh, um, the, the the popular view? Uh, well, he certainly. During his, he, I mean, yeah. he, yes, I do. I mean, not least because you know he did he did have uh, uh, an opportunity uh, to tell the story rather differently. But you know, he uh, certainly when he was chancellor, uh, part, as part of his you know campaign to supplant uh, Tony Blair. Uh, he was, you know, he was courting the, the, the mail and he was courting the Murdoch press, um, and that was, you know, part of the part of the way of doing it was to be seen to be uh, fighting this sort of muscular uh, Britishness, uh, even when it was largely, even when it was largely manufactured. And I think, I mean, the book he wrote in in 2016, before the referendum, kind of re- reflects that. It's ostensibly a pro-European book but it's all actually about it's all actually about europe as a sort of vehicle for a kind of british national uh, predominance rather than rather than seeing the thing as as a partnership mm. so i mean where do you think we will be in 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 2025 2030 i mean i tend to have this suspicion that there is a logic to us essentially ending up inside the eea or or a re rebranded EEA. Um, are you as uh, optimistic as that, or well, I, I certainly, I certainly, I'm, 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 I'm with you in, in terms of the logic of it, because I think, I think that, I mean, you know, uh, from my personal conviction, I'd love to see us back in the European Union. Except that, I think that if we, you know, if we, were, assuming that public opinion turned in that direction, which is obviously a huge uh, if. Going back in, you know, we wouldn't have the budget rebate. We would have to be part of the single currency. So there are big hurdles there, which I think, in terms of negotiations and potentially in terms of a, of a referendum on membership, would be very huge hurdles. Whereas I agree, mean, it seems to me that it seems to me that if you are outside, given the importance of this relationship, both politically and economically, and it's going to continue that way, we're not going to suddenly shift the balance of our trade massively. Um, the the the, North, the EEA and that type of relationship is is the best you can get short of actually being being part of the club absolutely and I think that uh, you know a, a future a future government where hopefully this issue has 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 lost all the poison that, that it's had in our in our system would be able to 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 contemplate that not least because you know the advantages compared with uh, the second or third rate relationship we seem to be headed for now the advantages would i think be very apparent and it it does seem to be more perhaps in keeping with where british broad british public opinion is um that that we in quotes we joined a common market we didn't join a, a new state Yes, I mean, of course, you know, we. I mean, uh, uh, as I say in the book, Ted Heath did sign up publicly to both economic and political union uh, before we joined, and Harold Wilson reaffirmed the commitment um, during his renegotiation in seventy four, seventy five. But no, I uh, uh, I agree with you. I think uh, I think that is I think that is the case, and I mean, paradoxically, of course, in a way, it's it's what De Gaulle was uh, was offering us. Um, Back in the uh, uh, at the end of the, uh, the end of the nineteen sixties, um, and re rejected on the on it was rejected by the Labour government on on the basis that you know we would be rule takers and not rule makers. Mm. Well, since you're not going to be, it looks like you're not going to be writing any more of the official uh, volumes. Uh, are you working on anything else or planning to work on another book? 
Uh, I'm not. No, I'm not. I, I, I think I. I think I probably. I think I probably shot my bolt uh, about as, as regards as regards writing about Europe. It was a cathartic thing to do, and I think. I think uh, you know. I mean, other people will will tell the story with much greater perspective and 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 not as much um, of a dog in the fight as uh, as I have. But uh, I think it was a you know it was a story that that or is a story that needs to be needs to be told but I, I suspect if I if I return to try to write in history I'll choose a completely different era probably <laughs> well as since this is a podcast about books I'll finish with a question which is about the power of the written word and not about Europe and you have said that the God delusion by Richard Dawkins led to your loss of uh, religious faith I presume in your 50s or 60s which is is very late what exactly happened well, I, th- I think, um, and poss- possibly like, uh, possibly like quite a lot of um, fellow Christians or fellow fellow, fellow Catholics, uh, uh, anyway. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, w- I would love to be a believer. I would love to, you know, I would love to believe that there is an afterlife and so on. And I think, I think, therefore, I didn't allow myself to address um, the alternatives that actually um, uh, there isn't an afterlife. Um, and reading when I, when I started on Dawkins, I wasn't expect I wasn't reading it hoping to be convinced by him. Or mm. I, I had no particular expectations, but he kind of forced me, I think, intellectually to think about uh, things in a way that I hadn't thought about before. And I found his arguments convincing in a sense that I could no longer kid myself that I was believing in something that fundamentally I I didn't believe in. Okay, well, uh, today I have been talking to Stephen Wall about his new book, Reluctant European, Britain and the European Union from 1945 to Brexit, published by Oxford University Press. Stephen, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you.